And open up in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. Our scripture reading this morning, uh, which will be the basis for the sermon, is going to be the entire chapter of Exodus 33. Go ahead and follow along as I read. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To you, to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments, for the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face. As a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, Please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us? So that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all of my goodness pass before you, and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen." This is God's word. Children, you can be dismissed to Children's Church. And as they are going, I'm going to open us in a word of prayer. Pray with me. Father, we have a text here that leads us to see what is at the heart of our identity, of our mission, of the very purpose for which we were created. I pray that you would reveal it to us more clearly, cause us to cherish it more fully, and help us to love the gospel that enables it. 
those things in your name. Amen. If God were to give you every good desire of your heart today, but not himself, how would you respond? If God were to give you everything that is good within your heart that you desire, but exclude himself, what difference would that make to you? That was the question facing Israel in this passage. Back in the early 2000s, there was a group of sociologists led by a guy named Christian Smith who did a pretty large study surveying the landscape of religious teenagers. So we're talking teenagers who are religious. What's the feel, or maybe to use a better term, what's the vibe in that group of people? And they came up with a three-word summary to define the religious landscape of American teenagers back in the early 2000s. Uh, guess who that describes? My generation, right? <laughs> I, I was a teenager in the early 2000s. The three words they used to describe it. Moralistic, therapeutic, deism. How many of you have heard that phrase before? Yeah? I've used it a few times in classes and stuff. I find it really maps on to our, our religious culture quite well. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic. Life is about being a good person. Have you heard that catchphrase? Be a good person. Life is about moralism. It's about doing nice things. Kindness, faithfulness, tolerance, prudence. Being a good person. Therapeutic. Life is about the pursuit of happiness. Ever heard that phrase? The pursuit of happiness. Inner peace. Being well-adjusted. Having emotional intelligence. Being, feeling accepted. Feeling whole. Having a stable identity. Therapeutic. And then deism. Isn't it great that God helps us have all of these things? Isn't it great that God, whoever that may be, is out there helping to supply us with our two greatest desires, moralism and therapy, goodness and good feelings. Isn't that awesome that God's out there doing that? Deism, this idea that there's this remote being who we call God who's out there. Maybe we give him some Christian labels. Maybe we even have some Christian theology filling it in. But nonetheless, he's out there, and his real aim is to supply us with those great goals of moralism and therapy. God gives us a clear conscience by forgiving our sins. God helps us know how to act ethically at work. God helps us define what is just and true so that we can have authority in our fight against corruption and evil. God helps us find the peace we need to be gracious, supportive parents. You guys get the idea? God helps us do what we think we need to be doing. All good desires, but if we're not careful, all a massive case of missing the point. In Exodus 33 is one of those texts of scripture that helps us come back to the point. What is the purpose of being God's people? What is the center of all of this? Why does it all matter? Where does all of it flow from? If you could have every good desire of your heart, but not God's fellowship, would that be enough? Because that's what's at the center. Knowing and enjoying our God. Israel faced this question, and it's good for us to take some time to study it and consider it. Our text here has three paragraphs, and so I have three points for us this morning. Not just three because three is the preaching point, but three because there's three paragraphs. The priority, the patterns, and the promise of fellowship with God. So let's begin with the priority of fellowship with God in verses 1 through 6. The context here, just to bring us back into the text, is God is responding to Israel's sin. 
Moses came down from the mountain with the tablets, saw Israel worshiping a golden calf, covenant broken, tablets smashed. Moses goes to intercede on Israel's behalf, and here's God's response. Some of this response might seem shocking to you. Some of it seems like it fits. Let's look first at God's response. It's summarized in in verse 3, really. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, if you have the biblical story in your mind, that is no small statement. That is the hope that God's people have been clinging to for generations. That there is a land, and it is a good land. And it is going to be their land. This is a promise given to Abraham and to his offspring. A promise based on God's faithfulness alone that it would be fulfilled. This is the hope of God's people right here. That they are going to a land that God has provided for them. This is no small thing God is offering. He's saying, go. I will send my angel with. I will drive out the people. I will give you this land. God is proving faithful to his covenant that he made with Abraham. Despite Israel's sin, he will fulfill his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The problem is is that God has more covenant to be faithful to now. He has a covenant that he just ratified with Israel at Sinai, and he will be faithful to it. And what does that covenant say? It says, If you obey me and keep my commandments, you will be to me a chosen people, a precious people, a set-apart people, a kingdom of priests to my name. But if you do not, curses, judgment will come upon you. So God is faithful He's faithful here in this first paragraph to give them the land promised to Abraham. And he's faithful to give the answer to his promise. In the words, I will not go with you. A holy God cannot dwell among a stiff-necked, sinful people. A faithful God must fulfill his promise to judge a faithless people. God will not go up amongst them. They can have all of those desires that have been locked onto this land promise for generations, but they will not have their God in their midst fellowshipping with them. They could have all the fruit of God's promises but no promise of ongoing fellowship. What's their response? What sort of innate, visceral response does this garner in the heart of Israel? It's telling. We have a very mixed bag of responses in Israel's history so far, do we not? I mean, they just seem to be riding a roller coaster of faith and unbelief, faith and unbelief, faith and unbelief. And here, in Israel's reaction, in this first paragraph of Exodus 33, we have a beautiful response. A response that we should admire and emulate. A response that should sink deep into our hearts. Look at, look at what it says. There's two, two real responses here to look at. Two aspects to a response that is characteristic of repentance. An inner and an outer response. Verse 4, When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. You see that? An inner, heart-level response. They mourned. Sorrow. Grief. But it didn't just stay there. It didn't just stay at the level of like, oh, this is a terrible word. We are sad about it. It led to obedience. Second half of verse 4. And no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. Dot, 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 dot. Therefore, 
Do not, or take off your ornaments, God commanded. And the Israelites do that. They stripped themselves of their ornaments. Do you see this response? What is this response saying about Israel? It's showing a heart of repentance. There's an inner dynamic of grief, and there's an outer dynamic of obedience. And it's showing something about what's deep down inside at this moment in time. It's showing that while they are a mixed bag of responses, there's something inside of them that helps them know that this is too much to bear. That this word from the Lord is so disastrous, it's taking something essential away. It's taking their treasure away. God's presence among Israel is the thing that makes them distinct, that gives them an identity, that makes them a people. Moses says as much down in verse 16. You can see it. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct from every other people on the face of the earth? By God saying, I will not go with you, he is saying, I am removing the very heartbeat of what it means for you to be a people. You can go into the land, but you're going to be without your God. And the people see this for the disaster that it is. No fellowship equals no flourishing. No presence equals no peace. No cloud of glory amongst them equals no comfort. They know what God is talking about. Do you? Do we? Is, is the fellowship of our God, of such a priority to you? Does the thought of his absence fill you with dread? I mean, I just want you to think honestly with yourself. Can you imagine a tomorrow, like literally, can you imagine tomorrow being a good tomorrow if you aren't actively fellowshipping with God tomorrow? Right? That's where rubber meets the road for us. Can we have a life that we think is good tomorrow without knowledge of God, response to God, enjoyment of God, prayer to God, promises from God? If we don't have his fellowship tomorrow, is it a good tomorrow? just want you to consider that. Right at the heart of what it means to be God's people is God's fellowship. May he help us set our desires on him who is most to be desired. May all the other good desires that he has given to us be from his hand and not in replace of him himself. May fellowship with our God be the greatest priority of our lives. You feel that? Let's pray that together. This first paragraph draws us to see the priority That's at the heart of what it means to be God's people. But what does this fellowship look like? What does it consist of? How did Israel enjoy the fellowship of God? That's really what this second paragraph is here for. If you notice, the the first paragraph is a narrative, right? It's a dialogue. And then the second paragraph is kind of just a little aside inserted. It's not furthering the narrative necessarily. It's adding color and detail to what's happening. And this color and detail being supplied in verses 7 through 11 is is really giving us an inside glimpse of what does this fellowship look like? What does it mean for a people to fellowship with God? And it gives us some really beautiful patterns, some beautiful dynamics to think about that that do map onto our life in Christ, maybe not in a one-to-one correlation, but have some heartbeat that's very similar, some some dynamics and patterns that draw us to think. And so let's consider it. Let's consider these these uh, these verses seven through eleven in that way of seeing what are what are the patterns at play in Israel's fellowship with God. Why do they cherish this? Why is the thought of this going away so repulsive to them? So verses seven through eleven, the patterns of fellowship. Really, I just want to draw out three. Patterns, three components to the pattern of Israel's fellowship with God. Um, this is going to be a relatively brief section, 
but I think it does add some color to what we're thinking about. Notice first, first pattern, first uh, component of the pattern. God would meet with those who sought him outside the camp. So think about the dynamic there. God would meet with those who sought him outside of the camp. I mean, you can just fill in all the data points there, right? This is not just Moses, you notice. The text says all who would go to seek the Lord there would be met. Amazing. God is approachable. That's amazing. And it's amazing because of what we see supplied as well. Outside of the camp. What is that signifying to us? It's that he can't dwell in the midst of a holy people. This tent of meeting is what we're talking about here. Uh, was It seems to be a tent that was used before the tabernacle was actually constructed. In the tabernacle, you're given a permanent place where God's glory dwells in the midst of the people. How? How can it dwell there? Because sins are being dealt with. Right? God can dwell in the midst of an atoned for people. But before the, the tabernacle was there, this is how God's people function in their fellowship. They would go outside of the camp and God would meet them there because inside of the camp was unholy. God in his holiness could not dwell amidst a sinful people. And yet God in his holiness meets with people who seek him. What an amazing tension what an amazing paradox that is. God is unapproachable. God is approachable. In his grace, God allowed sinful people who desired to know him to know him. In the tent of meeting, the creator God would fellowship with his creatures. So that's the first pattern here. God would meet with those who sought him outside the camp. Notice, secondly, Israel honored such moments with their worship. So it wasn't just that there were people, Moses in particular, going out into the tent to meet with God. It was that when such a thing happened, it had the attention and the honor of the people. Again, it just shows the priority that this moment has in God's people and should have in God's people. That the God of the universe would meet with sinners like you and me is amazing and deserves our worship. When God would condescend to come down and dwell in fellowship with a human being, the people of God would bow down in worship. Huge, majestic moment in their life. God's fellowship in their midst. The King of Kings bending down to minister to and love on children of the dust. Lastly, notice the, the nature of this fellowship. God would speak with Moses from a distance Guarded face to face as a friend speaks to a friend. Now, if you have some Bible verses flowing in your head saying, yeah, but, 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 we'll get to some of those. But just let that statement sit for a moment. Verse 11. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Speaking face to face doesn't carry as much weight in our context anymore. If you met the President of the United States, you would be perfectly fine speaking to him face to face, would you not? It would be kind of rude to not speak to him face to face. We live in an egalitarian culture. All men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with rights, correct? That's how we view one another, and that's, there's a, good, a goodness to that. But there's also a goodness to recognizing that glory needs to be responded to in a certain way. So it would also be right for us to speak to a president or a CEO or our parents, 
You know, these people in positions of authority and respect with a level of respect, a level of submission, a level of um, obvious going under their authority. A king would be a good king even when he's demanding that his subjects bow before him. Yet here, the king of kings is speaking face to face with a human being. It's equally right when human beings see the glory of God that they fall flat on their face as if dead. We can go to different texts for that, right? But here, you have Moses speaking to God as a friend, face to face. Now, that should not make us think, hmm, we are equal with God, or God is somehow removing his glory. It should make us think, wow, God is a gracious, merciful, condescending God who desires real intimacy with you and me. Not some remote worship like the pagan gods would be worshipped. Oh, you're out there, you're sleeping, you're doing your thing. We're going to offer our sacrifices. No, we want you here, present with us, communicating with us, being our friend. That's the God we're dealing with. This is the heartbeat, the center of Israel's life as a people. God condescending in mercy to meet as a friend with Israel. No other God of the nations did this. No other God of the nations could do this. No other God of the nations was glorious and therefore could condescend. And no other God of the nations was relational and therefore eager to fellowship. This is something unique to God. This is something unique to our Father who desires fellowship with his people. But this fellowship, back into the narrative, was now about to be removed. A disastrous word. The people respond. And now Moses will respond. Enter Moses, once again functioning as a priest for the people, standing before God, pleading on their behalf before him. And what is this intercession Moses makes? Starting in verse 12. This paragraph gives us an inside glimpse at this beautiful moment where Moses and God meet in fellowship, in exchange, in dialogue. And in it, we have this beautiful promise to meditate on. So let's look from verses 12 through 23 at the promise of fellowship. How does this problem get solved? How do we have hope that God would meet his people when he just said, I will not go with my people? Where do we go for this promise? Well, let's look at Moses' intercession here. It really has three waves, you could call them, three repetitions. There's three requests followed by three responses. Moses' plea really runs on two motivations. Why is he pleading? What is he praying about? Why is he praying about it? There's a personal and a corporate. Let's start with the corporate. Moses is motivated on behalf of the people. Israel is God's people needs God's present fellowship. And so you get verse 16. How shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? How will the nations know that we are called out, that we are given by your grace, your promises, and your presence? How will we know that we have your favor? How will they know that, they have your favor, that we have your favor if it is not you amidst us? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? You see Moses' motivation here. Israel needs God with them because it is in his presence that they are constituted as a called out, favor set upon people. All the earth is the Lord's. What makes this people distinct? 
It is that He is in their midst. Without Him in their midst, they have no identity. Without them, they are not. Without Him, they are not a people. So, church, consider this. We'll get to it in a little bit, but consider it now. Our identity, what makes us distinct, is first and foremost and irrevocably this reality. When you think about who we are, what comes to your mind first? Your moralism? Your political identity? What causes you champion? The faces you meet with? What comes to your mind first? What defines us? Again, let's pray that God's presence would define us. That our identity in Him would be the first thing on our hearts when we think about who we are. We are His. So that's the corporate. Moses is pleading on behalf of Israel as a people. He's functioning as a priest, going before God and interceding on behalf of the people. That's the corporate motivation Moses has. Let's look at the personal, though. There's this amazing, insecure insecure moment that Moses is feeling right now. God just told him, lead the people into the promised land, but I'm not going with you. Uh, So you want me to lead this people who you just said is stiff-necked, and you're not going to come with me. He's got some personal motivation here. Moses, as the leader of Israel, needs God's present fellowship, or else he's going to fall flat. There's this amazing statement he makes in verse 13, and we're going to spend a little bit of thinking about it. There's a dynamic here. It's just amazing. Verse 13, Now therefore, Moses says, If I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Do you see the logic? If I have found favor... Past tense. And he's already said that he has found favor. So it's, a, it's not a, oh, I don't know if I have, but maybe if I have. That's a, if indeed your word is true that I have found favor in your sight, then do something now. Show me your ways. Why? So that I may know you. Why? So that I may find favor in your sight. God's favor, God's favor, in the middle, what do we see? What's the, again, what's the dynamic of fellowship with our God? Revelation. Response. Who are you? What's your ways? So that I can respond rightly to who you are in your ways and find favor in your sight. Do you see that? What are we talking about when we talk about fellowship with God? We're talking about receiving from Him His Word and responding to that Word with a life, with a heart that, that pleases Him. That's fellowship with God. And you see Moses needing this. He needs God to show up to confirm who He is for Moses so that Moses can lead in the way He needs to lead. He needs God's revelation in order to be the sort of leader God calls him to be. So he prays. He needs this personally. Grace leads to revelation and knowledge of God, which leads to a life that pleases God. Moses and Israel both need God's presence, revealing himself to them so that they can please him and continue to enjoy his presence. Here's an interesting question I have. If you, you've probably read through this passage before, I'd imagine, or even just now, this morning as we read through it. There seems to be this, like, jump between the first two requests and the third request. Do you guys notice that? There's, like, a difference, a, a change in the request. I want to ask the question, what motivates 
Moses to move from requests one and two, which is essentially come with, to request three, which is in verse 18. Please show me your glory. Why doesn't Moses just ask, come with? You know, God's present. There, solved. Why does he jump to show me your glory? What's the connection? I have no way of answering that question other than to say, Moses can't help but go there. For what he needs, and the sort of thing he's praying for, he can't help but get to this center this heartbeat, this innermost dynamic of what he enjoys in his fellowship with God. The very essence of why God's ongoing presence is so precious to him. The essence of fellowship with God is found in God's ongoing revelation of his character. Without that, there is no fellowship. And so in praying that he would go with Israel, he's just taking the next logical step and saying, do it now. Show me your glory. Show me your glory so that I can trust that what you just said is true. Show me your glory so that I can hunger for more of it. Show me your glory now. This is so ordinary. It's easy to miss the the magnificence of this. Think, think about it in terms of friendship. You are friends with somebody. So therefore you want to grow to know them. So that you can be better friends with them. Right? It's kind of the nature of friendship. It's why we hang out. It's why we ask questions. It's why we live life and see characteristics coming out over and over and over. So that you can deepen in that relationship as you come to know one another more. It's even more obvious within the covenant of marriage. Husbands, wives, isn't this exactly how fellowship, when it's working, works in your marriage? There has been a promise made. We belong. We are with. And from that promise comes an intimate revelation of who we are to one another. We are naked and unashamed, right? Literally and metaphorically, we are opened to one another. And in that openness comes knowledge of one another and the ability to live with your wife in an understanding way and to love your wife, love your husband and to serve one another and to have all of these dynamics that come from intimate knowledge. For Moses, he needs this revelation if he's going to respond rightly. But let me ask the question. What does the request even ask for? Some of you get tripped up by that. I think I I feel this in youth ministry a lot. Uh, When kids talk about, uh, I want to glorify God, I want to scratch my head and just ask the question, what do you understand that to mean? You want to glorify God. Because I think in their heads, when they think of God's glory, they think of bright shininess. Which is not unreal. God's glory does show up in bright shininess. Radiance. Majestic holiness. But what's really the essence of it? What is this request Moses makes? Show me your glory. What is he asking for? Well, we can see it in God's answer. What is it that Moses is asking for? Look at verse 19 and the way God responds. I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Moses says, show me your glory, God. And God responds with, okay, I will show you my goodness. I will proclaim to you my name, which carries all the reputation with it of who he is. You catch that? Moses asks to see glory, and God promises to reveal character. 
The glory of God certainly does radiate a majestic light. Its, its essence, though, what it truly is, is majestic holiness. It's the perfection of who he is. It's, it's such an important observation for us. If we, if we think that in imitating Moses here, we are calling for God to give us a vision of radiant majesty, like he did to Ezekiel or to John, we're going to have potentially a frustrated Christian life. Certainly he does re- reveal that to individuals, but we're not called in Scripture to expect that, are we? What are we called in Scripture to do? Know him in all of the perfections of his character. And so we can follow Moses in this prayer as, a, as the central hunger of God's people to long to know him more, to pray, show me your glory. And by saying that, show me who you are. Because that's the heartbeat. That's the thing that pumps blood to all the rest of the Christian life. Without that thing, the Christian life falls apart. God's people fall apart. There is no lifeblood to it. He is the source of it. Knowing Him, and in knowing Him, loving Him, and enjoying Him is what makes us function as God's people. Moses is asking to know God's character, which has been so revealed so many times, and yet here he's asking for it once again. Show me who you are. Show me the God I am following, the God who is now promising me promises, the God who we need in our midst. Have you felt something? Attention? Verse? Sorry. Verse 11. Man fellowshipping with God face to face. Look down. Then I will take, verse 23, Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Verse 20, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. God promises to show Moses his glory, and yet there's this tension here. Wait, so Moses saw... Spoke face to face with God as a friend, and now here you're saying, in response and showing him your glory, you're not going to show him your face. Anybody see that in the text? That's a tension for me. It's a, it's a challenge. Whenever scripture uses the same words meaning different things, it always, I always struggle with it. I'm like, but it means it says that and this, you know, and how does that fit? Let's think about that, because it's important as we think about how that translates into our own life. When God said face to face as with a friend... He was speaking of this intimate expression. When God says, you cannot see my face and live, he's speaking of you, have, you cannot gaze at the unmediated display of my glory and survive. Why? Because we are fallen. We can't see God in his holiness and live. That's why all the biblical saints who've gone before us who have seen it fell on their face as if they were dead. That's what, that's what happens when we see God's glory. God's saying, I will show you, Moses, my glory. I will proclaim my character to you. But my face, that most intimate expression of my glory, needs to be hidden from you. And so we're brought to this point of tension. Like, okay, so we can know God truly, but there's a, 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 a lack of fullness We are finite. We are limited. We are sinful. We can't fully see him and therefore fully represent him as fallen individuals. We cannot dwell in that space. So God gives him what he can give him. You can see the the end, the back. You can see the remains of my glory as it passes forward, which we're going to see next week. 
uh, in, in chapter 34, but glory for us, and this is, this is the point that brings us home, glory for us must be mediated. We shouldn't think of that as a restriction, like, oh, God's being cheap. He's not showing Moses everything he could show him. We should think of that like, wow, God is making a way for a human being to actually see him. That's amazing. Yeah, sure, there's restrictions because we're not God. But he's actually making a way for Moses' request to be answered. There's actually a promise of revelation here. He will show Moses his glory. A mediated glory. The end, the, the like end particles of the comet, so to speak. The back of the glory. But the glory. And Moses was amazed by it. It would have radically changed his entire life to see such a thing. We're going to draw our attention in the next 10 minutes through Christ to the Lord's Supper. And as we prepare our hearts to enjoy the fellowship meal of God's people, I want us to transition from Moses' mediated, real, true revelation, but not full revelation, to a greater revelation, a greater display of God's glory that you and I enjoy every single day, perpetually, ongoingly. And that glory is, you could go to various texts, but let's go to 2 Corinthians 4. Verse 6. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. Moses cherished the thought of being able to see the back of God's glory. Once, in a moment, a brief glimpse. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The face of Jesus Christ displaying God's glory in a way that we can know in our hearts. How often does he do that? Well, if you back up to chapter 3, the veil's been removed. Our eyes have been opened to see this every day, every moment of every day, ongoingly, forever. How? How do we see the glory of God, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? How do we see it? Go back to chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians. I just want to point this out since we have a few minutes. Since we have, verse 12, Since we have such hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, where are they gathering glory? When they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. What's this freedom? And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So let me ask you, how do we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? 
We read. Did you catch that? We read. What do we read? We read of Jesus Christ. And we see his glorious character on display for us throughout the scriptures. We see the way he reveals to us the Father's heart and the Father's will. We see Jesus acting like a normal human being like you and I, caring for people, speaking God's word, walking in faithfulness. We see his perfection of what you and I are doing every day. And we see it by reading. And some of you might be tempted to think, wow, that's kind of like an ordinary way to land this sermon. And that's exactly what I'm trying to do. Do you realize how extraordinary that is? Moses would have given his life for that. To have such a full display of God's glory for all to see. And when the disciples realized it, guess what happened to their lives? We beheld his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And what happened to you, John? You went to your death for it. What happened to you, Paul, when you saw it and you, you heard the voice of the risen Christ? You went to your death for it. You see it in, in 2 Corinthians 4 here. Before the passage we just read, so the first few verses here, we, we have this ministry by the mercy of God. We do not lose heart, but we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. We don't get clever, but by the open statement of the truth... We would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. What are they doing because of what they understand? They understand that what they have in the revelation of Jesus Christ is the most powerful thing in the universe. And so they don't gunk it up. They lay it out there. Down in verse 7, But we have this treasure... Israel, you can go into the promised land, but you're not going to have God with you. Oh no, we're not going to do that. Like, we're going to grieve because this treasure is being taken away of God's presence. We have this treasure in jars of clay in our very selves to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The things we do every day as Christians, the prayers we pray to reveal your glory to us in the scriptures, the, the reading that we do in the scriptures, the conversations we have about how Jesus is great and his character and how he's showing us who he is more and more is revealing to us the very glory of God. The very heartbeat of what it means to be his people. The lifeblood that when pumped into our hearts goes out into every appendage and leads to a life lived to the glory of God. It is the thing to see him more clearly, to know him more fully, to have his ongoing, abiding fellowship through Jesus Christ is the thing. May we repent of this, like, callous, mediocre view of what it means to live a Christian life. I'm right there with you. We read this book so often that it can get mundane. And yet in it is displayed to us the radiant holiness of our God as we come to know Jesus more and more. The light of his glory shone into our hearts by the Spirit as we gaze at Jesus Christ.